Hello, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rupert. I am Steve McDonough. It's episode one. I, that is pretty. That, I think that should be our theme song That's in each, each episode. episode. one. Yeah. As we get into like the 190th, that'll be an awkward <laughs> theme song, but I like it. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our first episode, hence the name episode one. And uh, just a little bit about the whole idea of this, our the premise behind But I Digest uh, is to be this podcast where every episode we're featuring a specific food and then we meander down through the windy backstory. And along the way, we cherry pick the choicest or the ugliest or the strangest, but always the lowest hanging fruits along the way. And between the two of us, I think we know just enough to be a little bit dangerous. A little bit dangerous. Yeah. I think what you've just described is this is a podcast for people who enjoy food and ADD. (laughs) <laughs> if those two things work for you, we should be we should be holding hands together, wandering these paths and having no idea where we were and how we got where we are now. Well, I uh, I tend to get a little verbose at times and I get excited. And so uh, Steve is here to kind of hold my uh, hold hold my hands, hold my hands along the way. There's going to be a lot oh, of hands. That's the hands first jokes. one. That's yeah. the first. People, this is episode one. Please mark that spot. Mark that timer where Hans made a hands Hans pun. Mark that. It, this is it goes downhill from very. Here. It's going to be very dad joke, pun joke, umlaut heavy kind of a podcast. But we are excited to have you along with us on this meandering journey, and uh, I I'm excited to be in Chicago for this first one as well. And here we are in Chicago. All right, so why don't you get us started and tell us what you want to what what interests you today? What is tickling your food fancy today? I uh, what's what really kind of launched this whole idea is the story of the croissant, right? So the croissant, not the not the thing that you would buy at a fast food restaurant, but the real deal, the flaky, buttery, you know. And when you think of a croissant, where do you think of the croissant? Like, what what associations do you have when you think croissant? Well, there's a wonderful croissant place here in Highland Park, Illinois, that I really love. With a, a French baker has opened, and it's staffed with a lot of other French bakers and um, French staff, and it's it's terrific. But of course, you think about France, and you just think about the breakfasts there, where you get oh my gosh, the word just went right out of my head. But that that breakfast that you get that's uh, just breads and different spreads, the cheese and maybe some Nutella. And I just, I love that. I'm not a big breakfast person. So just bread and coffee is the way to go for me. But then just peeling. I love to peel oh, a yeah. croissant. I love to just, yeah, just kind of like dissect it and then bite the layers and save, especially save the crispy outer layer for last. And you want to know, you want there to be forensic evidence of that breakfast afterwards. You're going to have the croissant crumbs like everywhere. You stand up and it's this this shower of, right. or at least that's the way I eat them. I'm a messy Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I, w- would it shock you a week ago, obviously you and I've had a conversation to know that croissants are not at all French in history? Well, it would not because- we did decide what the show would be about. So spoiler alert, I, I know everything that is about to happen. Well, that will make for a more interesting conversation, the fact I that can you, pretend. You, you, wait, wait. Stop. Shut the front door. What? Croissants are what? They are from Alabama, it turns out. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is a, this is a shocking episode. It is a shock. No shade to my friends in Alabama. But no, it is. Um, it was actually in Germany with my father many years ago when I was a young lad. 
uh, eating a croissant in Munich, where when I broke my croissant in half, my father said, you just gave the middle finger to the Turks. And without knowing what he was talking about, I, it was it was such a, like a shocker, like, what do you mean? And we will get through the specifics of it, but essentially the crescent that is uh, the croissant shape, I guess the croissant is the French the word fr- for, for crescent, for crescent right? represents in historically the the crescent moon from the Turkish flag. And so that's kind of how this story starts and where it ends up is going to be in one of those fancy French cafes with uh, with brass trimmings and and uh, hopefully some uh, some good coffee along the way. So that's what got me excited about this, not only as an episode, but it put us down the rabbit hole for exploring other foods. And the bagel so, hole. The bagel, the bagel hole. hole. Exactly if, right. If you will. The bagel hole. All I right. Feel... So let, let's talk about it. Tell, tell us about these, uh, these Turkish croissants. I have in the past had turkey croissant. Oh, really? But wait, with turkey, like yeah, the deli sure. meat? A little or... turkey on a croissant? Yeah. But yeah. I know that's not what you're talking about. I mean, it could be. You could have a Turkish turkey croissant that, with Turkish coffee. I feel like I need a fez now for this conversation. But um, <laughs> I do have a fez, by the way. It's a total, total sign. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, going back to uh, the history, essentially goes all the way back to the Battle of Vienna. And I have to be specific because I learned there were many battles for Vienna. So putting on my history teacher, uh, Fez, now for the moment, uh, Vienna strategically is this amazing spot. So the Danube River goes all the way to the west to central Europe, but to the east in, in a very meandering path goes to the Black Sea. And so from a military strategic viewpoint, it is this amazing gem. If you're if you're wanting to expand your empire, Vienna is where you want to be. And so there were many attempts dating all the way back to, and there's not going to be a quiz, so you don't have to remember this number, but for back to 1529 was the first attempt for the Ottoman Empire. And you'll hear the term Ottoman Empire and the Turks or Turkish Empire really is one thing. So those don't confuse. I mean, define my terms. But all the way back to 1529, they multiple times tried to take the city. But specifically, going to the Battle of Vienna in 1683 was a global affair where there were several other countries pulled in to help Vienna defend itself from Turkish invaders. And the Turks, having failed many times to attack the city by normal means, were attempting to tunnel beneath the city. And not just one tunnel, they were doing a a whole labyrinth of tunnels trying to get underneath this very fortified, heavily fortified uh, city of Vienna. Which must have been really hard as well because of the Danube right there. So who knows what that soil could have been like. And, you know, um, trying to find like a generator and power for all of this heavy earth moving (laughs) equipment. I was making like a serious point. (laughs) I thought that was a serious point. And and trying to find like a USB charger for, no. But no, you're you're exactly right. I mean, think about it. I mean, the, the topography, the geography of that area, you're right there. At any time you dig... You're, you're at the water level, right? right? So it's going to flood. And, but I mean, to my point, there are no power tools. I mean, this is all pickaxe, shovel kind of things, right? So it, it was a huge undertaking. So during this particular siege, the bakers, as they often do, they're up early in the morning making bread. Now, I'm not talking about the invaders. I'm talking about in the city of Vienna. Even though it's under siege, it's a fortified city and life has to go on as normal as possible. So bakeries were still making bread bread and, and, you know, people were still going about yeah. their daily business as much as they possibly could. Yeah. And 
the bakers, most of whom were working in underground kitchens. And you've been to you've been to Europe, and you know there are oftentimes restaurants where you go below street level. Little Rothkeller action. That's right, Little Rothkeller, and uh, and Keller is cellar, right? I mean, that's the that's the same word. But they do that for a, a number of reasons, but mainly because storage pre-refrigeration days, where you're going to keep your food best, it's going to be in like a root cellar, like underneath. But also, you don't take away from your potential dining space. So the bakers were awake and baking early in the morning, and they heard the activity. They actually heard the tunneling of of the Turks coming in, and because they were up early and underground, essentially, they were able to alert the forces that, hey, we're under attack. And they saved the city of Vienna from being overrun because just in sheer numbers, the Turks had a great chance in this particular battle of Vienna. They had the the might, the strength, the will, but it was just the, the bakers being aware and hearing the sound. They didn't have their headphones on. They weren't listening to a podcast. They were in the moment making their making their bread. And essentially save the city they they were the heroes of of that time which they were now is this a situation where they were then on horseback through the streets shouting the bakers are coming the bakers are coming i guess that's a good question <laughs> i hope so i mean that would right? be uh, with their with their not. toques flapping in the wind they're holding on to the horse with one hand the toque on the other like <laughs> It would be a missed opportunity if that didn't happen. So yeah. sadly, again, the uh, the video archives from that time are so grainy. Dust clouds of flour and s- <laughs> semolina just behind them. I want to commission somebody to paint the scene you're describing <laughs> in, a, in in a, in the style of of that period. But pose when when the dust when the flour dust settles and the the city emerges as you know victorious over the Turks, the bakers were celebrated, and so they were celebrated in two ways. There was this crescent shaped cookie of the time that actually predates this. And it was actually sort of an Easter celebration cookie where it was, that's why it was moon-shaped, uh, called the kipferl. And the kipferl is this sort of, almost like a, an Italian wedding cooking, a cookie. It's it's that kind of powder, sugary, almondy, brittle. Literally just had one. I did too, actually. Yeah. Literally just, mm-hmm. my, my mother-in-law had. just sent a whole bunch of them, the almond ones and the pecan ones. and Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. delicious. So there was I'm this- getting- powdered sugar on my mic. I think I already have it around. I thought it was something else, but um, <laughs> the uh, that was already a celebratory cookie, but that came out again in celebration of the defeating of the, of the Turkish army, the Ottoman Empire that had that crescent moon. But also at the time they were doing this kind of new dough, not new to them, but in Vienna, they were making this laminated dough. Now you say it better than I do. The, what do the French call this dough? The venoiserie. Venoiserie, right? So this, so well, that's that's the bakery's word. That, that's the that's the name of the type of bakery. Well, let's call it Viennese dough, just for, <laughs> just to make it easier on our pronunciation. It's venoise, isn't it? Venoise, yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, as a as a half German, French words are very difficult for me. I mean, like on a genetic level, I have a hard time, nice. um, you know, uh, saying French words, but. Uh, this laminated dough, which is basically, if you if you imagine like a lasagna, where there's layers and layers and layers, it is alternating layers of of butter or some type of fat and dough, right? So as you bake it, you get these these flaky layers that are very buttery, and that was uh, already being made at the time in Vienna, and they were known for that. But they were then started making these breads in the shape of a crescent. So every morning when you were breaking that crescent. It was a symbolic victory over the Turk, which is exactly what my father was telling me, although his uh, his was a little flowery by saying I was giving the middle finger to the Turks, which I didn't realize that I was doing. Again, no offense to our, to our Turkish listeners. But that to me was such a fascinating story that had those bakers not been 
doing their daily yeah. toil at that moment, the world would have been a completely different place. Not not saying better, worse, whatever, but what life as we know, like one little thing like that, had they overslept their alarm clock, you know, the big one that you have to crank. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if they had overslept that, that whole region, the Danube and as the, the Ottoman Empire, but in, instead that was a pretty pivotal moment for for the world. I love that. that that's I, I had no idea. Also, it, as you're talking about them oversleeping, I am as a child of the of the 70s and 80s. It just puts me back to those old Dunkin' Donuts commercials with the guy with the big mustache waking up. Time to make the donuts. Time to make the croissants. Time to save Vienna. Time to thwart time the Turks. To save Vienna. I want a T-shirt that says "Time to thwart the Turks." But <laughs> it's not. So how did the uh, how did it get to France, unless you want me to like tell I, you I think why. That, uh, you that's gonna, I'm going to throw the bone to you. You want yeah. me to tell you how I'm, it got to France? I'll tell you how it got I'm to I'm going to pass the fez to you. <laughs> well, I wish we had, you should have brought the fez and I would have so bought a monkey. <laughs> I would love a monkey and a fez. So, okay. So how did this Viennese bread pastry end up being so specifically French? So the there's a lot of legends when we go in through this, right? There may be, there's a lot of facts that mix with legends and things get kind of muddy. So don't people, if you're listening to this, don't come at me with your like exact facts. I, I'm doing my best. Everything has been loosely fact checked here to the general best of my poor ability. So how did it end up there? The legend is that Marie Antoinette was from Austria. That's right. Forgot so, that. Right. So when she ended up there, you know, being dragged out to uh, Paris as she was, she missed the croissant and the those Viennese uh, breads, and was requesting that the well, probably more demanding that the royal bakers I, made I her. I imagine she was a bit of a diva. She was a diva. Le croissant for her in in the uh, tourly. So that is supposedly how it got there. But the main reason, the the thing that made it industrialized in. Paris was a man named August Zhang. Now, this guy I was so excited to tell you all about. August Zhang was a 19th century Austrian entrepreneur. Now, he in Vienna could see that there was a need for those types of pastries and baked goods in France. So he went to Paris with a steam oven. So he introduced a steam oven to Paris and the steam oven uh, doing that steam baking, it helps to glaze the bread. It slows the crust formation and makes a, a flakier pastry with thinner layers and a really moist interior. Now, before he got there, he was just like this artillery officer. That's a big stretch going from bang, bang, to bang, zang. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, going from that, though, like military guy to yeah. pioneer of, of a baking The technique. pioneer of the bread. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. And so that's what he does. And he opens up what becomes the boulangerie uh, viennoiseries. So those are the Viennese bakeries. Now, when they are there and they've got all of those gorgeous, the gorgeous, you know, sweets in the front and possibly a back room that just had the common breads. Right. Is that like a description of a mullet, right? It's sweets in the front, common breads in the back. <laughs> what kind of bread in the back? Common, common bread. Common bread is what you said, I think. <laughs> yes. So this started about 50 years after Marie Antoinette's beheading. Now, when they made these, they were very ornate and very just over the top, you know, with the mirrors and the brass mosaics and frescoes. They would have the display room in the common room. Well, the French who just had like these very rustic bakeries couldn't really compete with this. So what did they do? They figured, you know, a few well-placed mirrors, some white marble on the countertops, some black and white tiles. That's how they could up their game and kind of match 
the uh, viennoiseries. And so that is the classic French bakery right. that we think of right now, right? I can totally envision, like without you even describing it, if you said French bakery, that is what I imagine. Yeah, it's what every you know, Instagram mom is doing right now in her kitchen. Right? So, But the viennoiserie, the difference is that these are breads, but they're enriched with butter and eggs and cream. And that's going to be your, your pain au chocolat, your brioche, your croissant, uh, probably, um, what do you call the couchère? Is that the right word? Yes, I know what you're talking about. But my pronunciation is, is don't look at me for French, but I know what you're talking but about. You, you should look at me because mine has been stellar. It's spot on. So far. So- this is what this guy does, right? And he changes the face of French baking and industrializes it, right? So 10 years later, because of all the unrest in France, he has been hanging out in, in Paris and learning a little bit about publishing and was really inspired by the French newspaper La Presse. Now, it was low cost because they had advertising for, uh, you know, to, to keep the cost down for right. people and shorter articles, easier to read. It was for like the upper middle class. Now, he saw that there was a need for that back in Vienna. So this is what is so cool about August Zhang is he's Viennese. He sees, he brings what he knows to Paris. Then he learns something in Paris and brings that back to Vienna. So now he goes to Vienna and you don't want me to say Vienna, do you? You want me to say Wien. Wien. The rest of the world calls it Wien. Somehow we added the, the extra rest of the, syllable. What, yeah, but what part of the world are we in right now? Uh, Chicago. You're in my basement. I'm in your basement. It's Vienna in my basement. It's a different vernacular in your basement. Noted. Right. And I I did. I tried to get rid of the vernacular with this mold paint and it's still every now and then you can see (laughs) it. So don't breathe deep. Too late. Anyway. So he starts another newspaper out there called Depressa. Now, Depressa is still in print. It is still going on. And this is the one that he started. So he becomes a printing magnet. Wow. So as now he owns this huge uh, newspaper, he's becoming a big money fella, right? He sells the newspaper. He buys a bank. Uh, where do you go shopping for a bank? Yeah, that's know, that's pretty probably like, a really good uh, yeah. bank rolls. <laughs> that's a little, <laughs> that's a little RuPaul joke for all of you guys out there. <laughs> bank rolls. Anyway, he, he buys a bank and then he buys a mine. So this oh. whole time he wants to be known as this huge, you know, press magnate and not a baker. But what I love about it is like, it just makes me think like if if Rupert Murdoch died and you're reading his obituary and it's like Rupert Murdoch, inventor of the snickerdoodle. <laughs> you know, it's like, his greatest achievement. His greatest achievement. Everyone knows you him. You would that. have thought it could have been that, but you, you, can't, you can't really read the paper without like just a delightful, crunchy snickerdoodle. Zang. I, I think that's going to become my new word of uh, where I'm expressing enthusiastic uh, interest. It's going to be zang. I think he would like that. Zang. So when he dies, they hardly even mention that he transformed the face of baking because that's not what he wanted to be known for. The last thing he wanted to be known for was being a baker. So here's my favorite part. So this, this you know, Zang of all trades. guy, right? So he passes away and he gets, he has a tomb built for himself. And it's like this, now I told you he had a mine, right? Right. So it's of this pyramidal rock and up on the, and that, and in the rock is a big, heavy door to make it look like kind of like a mine, you know, and I guess he's in there. And then up above is an eagle holding a wreath and two uh, medallions, the cameos of him and his dad. And on either side of this door are two statues of dwarf-like figures holding lanterns next to the door. Dwarf, lantern-holding dwarves. 
I all of this just screams that's so spot on. It's exactly as it should be. Oh, it's brilliant. And he's still got yet another statue, one that's just kind of on the steps looking up, not even standing. It's not even like he wasn't he wasn't like, yeah, man, I want a, a, a standing statue. He's like, yeah, I want a statue just like kind of hanging out. I'm going to pay for that shit. I want him to just be like hanging out on the steps. And he's got some broken chains that's representing uh, uh, the revolution. And he's got a, a, a tablet that says Depressa on it. And here's the thing, though. Here's what I really need to say is that I've always told Dan, my husband, that when I die, I don't want like a, like a plaque or something like that. I don't want my dust to be just like sent over to Bermuda. I want like a statue. I want a friggin' statue. I want like a a, a a weeping angel who's like just crushed and she's got these big wings and they're kind of enveloping her and just kind of aiding her in her sorrow. But I don't want the wings to be like too tight yeah, around her. I want unfurled and like in motion. Maybe. A little, yeah, a little unfurled because I want people to see it from the street. Oh, nice. Yeah. I want something like that. But what I didn't realize is that I really want dwarves. Now I want the angel and two dwarves with lanterns. At least two. At least two. I don't want seven. Well, feng shui, you have to have, I mean- You're just going to ignore the whole seven dwarf thing. I wasn't going to go that far. I was just going to say three. So it's, you know, two becomes two. When is it too many? When three, is, what is too many lantern-holding dwarves? I, I I don't think there is too many. Two is about right, three is just I think just you're right. Going back to perfect. your RuPaul reference, I think over the top is the way to go. <laughs> Bank rolls. <laughs> All right, so now's the part that we stop talking about this, and we talk about like something very specific like recipes. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. Yeah, so it's very easy with with so many layers, uh, topical pun intended, uh, to this story. It's very easy to kind of get away from the fact that this is a food, right? This is not only a food, it is a, it is an amazing food. So as we talk about trying to like, what do we come up with for a recipe or a dish idea? Too many times, go talking about over the top, the croissant is already this perfect, buttery, flaky. And so if you add too much, it can become overwhelming at a, at a point. So without trying to veer too far away from what we love about a croissant, I like the dishes that that touch on all of those notes of a little sweet, a little salty, a little fatty, a little sour, a little of that earthiness. And so using the croissant as a vehicle, I, I'm kind of drawn to the idea of the sandwich, but not in the fast food, big box kind of a way. Because again, those are usually too heavy, too eggy, too, too greasy. But I wanted to take this package, this envelope, and inside there, we are going to put a little bit of cheese, but really good French brie or camembert. So it's going to have that kind of uh, sticky, unctuous earthiness to it in there. And then some thin slices of fresh fig if they're if they're in season or if you can get them. So you're going to have a little sweet and that texture as well. If it's not fresh fig season, you can take a little fig paste or even fig jam, but it's a bit sweet. So you have to kind of watch that ratio of earthiness to sweet. And then we're going to put that in the oven. Now, if the cheese is nice and earthy, you don't need this extra step that I'm mentioning. But if it's if it needs a little salt to it, you can take some Vegemite or Marmite and put just a thin scrape of that on either side of the uh, the inside of the of the sliced croissant. And that's going to add that sort of salty umami flavor as well. And we're going to put that into an oven at 350 degrees for about just three or four minutes so that the outside of the of this flaky pastry gets a little crisp and crunchy uh, so that it makes a lot of big mess when you when you bite into it. And then the inside, the cheese is just at that barely melted stage. So not mm-hmm. running down your elbows, but where it's just holding, gluing the whole thing together. And 
that then becomes this this layered sandwich. And really unintentionally, I thinking about it, I've sort of told the story in that sandwich. So we have the uh, the Viennese pastries. So we've got Austria represented. We have the figs, which are often you know from that sort of Turkey Mediterranean right. area. Uh, but we also have the French cheese. Uh, and even a slight nod to the Australians. And I, every time I would come back from Austria, our family used to go there in the wintertime. Yeah. People in Jasper would say, did you see any kangaroos? <laughs> so there's a little aside to that always awkward. Even my uh, my high school teacher one time asked, did you see any kangaroos in Austria? And I had to think, I don't think she's joking. Uh, so that is, a, in my mind, a perfect tribute to the croissant in a sandwich. I love that you, we talked about this earlier and you were saying that, you know, we want to do a recipe using a croissant and you wanted to stay away from like a croissant French toast or something like that, because the whole idea of this is is celebrating the croissant. So I think going a sandwich this way was a great idea. I'm not team Vegemite, but <laughs> I would try just, I, I understand that, that it's just the slightest great. smear for the yeah. umami. I, yeah. I will take it under consideration. Good. All right. So let's talk about cocktails, because that is my favorite thing to talk about. So, you know, I've written a book called The New Old Bar, and it is all vintage pre-prohibition cocktails. So I wanted to pull something from that idea of pre-prohibition and use something that would be reminiscent of Paris. Even, you know, I guess now I should have been really thinking about Austria, but damn it. We end up in Paris. It's Is it right? Let's do that. So I thought, what is the most uh, Parisian of liqueurs for me or spirits would be the absinthe. So I really wanted to use absinthe and put a bookmark in absinthe because I've got so much to talk about with absinthe. We'll have a great episode on that. So this is, the drink is called, are you ready people? A monkey gland. A monkey gland. Sounds delicious already. (laughs) Isn't it yummy? So it is a gin-based drink with orange juice and grenadine, and the absinthe gives it a little bit of a licorice flavor, a little uh, little bit of a spice. It's rounded off with the orange, and it's really just a, a great. It's it's a great cocktail because it's something that you have before the meal, and it is flavorful in and of itself, which is why I love cocktails. Now you say gland, though glands can be any number of places. So I, I hate to even ask what gland are we What part of the towards? monkey? Yeah, yeah, so this is named after something. It is named after an actual surgical procedure. What monkey gland do you think we're talking about, Hans? Oh, see, I'm, I'm afraid uh, I'm afraid to say it might be something near the tail. It is near the tail, but it's in front of the tail. Ooh, worse. That's worse. It is monkey testicles. Ooh. So this is a real thing. Now, now, listen to how I brought this shit around this for you. Is this a garnish? Hang on. Is this the garnish? This is the garnish. <laughs> the little plastic, you know, the, the little plastic yeah. monkeys that yeah, they put the, on the Monkeys screen. in a barrel. Just the, monkeys in a barrel. Yeah, it's just Famous the for their large testes. <laughs> so this is how I brought it around for you. There's a uh, French surgeon in the 20s and 30s, and his name was Sergei uh, Varnoff. Now, he is practicing in France, but he is actually a Russian transplant. He didn't practice that much. <laughs> Didn't fragments on me. <laughs> so that was the other thing that I really liked about this as we're thinking about August Zhang being a, a French transplant. Sure. And that's why I think this this is perfect how this comes around. So he would graft monkey testicle tissue onto human men's testicles. Uh, as one does. For virility, Ooh. to help I'm, them with their youth and virility. This well, was in the 20s and 30s. And he and it was he made a lot of money. He was doing really good with this. And everybody was like, yeah, viva le monkey balls. They were all like all behind him. And then it started to fall out of favor. And and all of the other doctors are kind of like going going away saying, you know, I may not have ever really been behind the monkey ball. I do not know this, Sergei Yoronov. So they were not interested in monkey balls anymore. 
But that didn't stop him from doing research at his castle because, of he's course, he had Castle Voronoff because he's a mad scientist. And who does not adore a mad scientist story? Oh, so With monkeys. With monkeys. So when he died, all the other doctors pretended they had never heard of him. And uh, he I don't think the newspapers like barely mentioned his death. No, or his monkey business. <laughs> or his monkey business. Oh, I make the whole story makes me thirsty. Makes you thirsty? Well, it's a it's a cocktail. It, it makes me cringe internally. Yeah, I, I, literally the, this entire time, I I feel like I've, I'm still clenched in places I'd forgotten I could clench. <laughs> so, what are we going to do about this? Now we have the recipes. Check them out on our website. Yes, which is starts with three W's and it goes to sons. <laughs> we we were <laughs> we're pretty sure. Uh, and and you can fact. This is where you can fact check us. Uh, we're pretty sure that it is. Uh, but I digest podcast dot com. So if you want these recipes, what we will always do is every week that we do these or every episode, we will put them over on our website at but I digest podcast dot com. That's but I digest podcast dot com. Sounds delicious. I can't wait to go. Okay. Are, are we done here? We are done here. We are done here. As we mentioned before, this is our first episode, and we are a scrappy yet valiant team, and we hope that perhaps you might subscribe, tell your friends, hit us up at Facebook or Twitter. Both uh, handles are at ButIDigestPod, or you can email us, ButIDigestPodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>